Today we're going to talk about uh, moving from full to empty, which doesn't sound like a move that we really want to make. That sounds like we're losing something. It sounds like we're moving to something worse than we began with, full to empty. Uh, Reagan is notorious about driving the car until it hits the empty sign. Any other empty drivers in the room this morning? Yeah. Any streamers empty drive? Yeah. Nudge your spouse at home? Yeah. Um, it drives me nuts. I'll get in the car and it'll say like zero miles to empty, like the, the range. I'm like, that's nothing. I can't go anywhere. What are you doing? Um, moving full to empty might not sound exciting, but I think it's a part of our faith, a shift that we're going to have to make if we want to go deeper in who we know Jesus to be and how we understand our relationship with him. Um, when I was growing up in the church, uh, you know, I went to Sunday school starting in about third grade, and you know, I learned a lot of good stuff about Jesus. I, I learned how to be a good person. I learned the stories of the Bible, but it wasn't really until my youth ministry experience that, that I began to really understand who Jesus was, and, and that's because I was able to participate in things like mission trips. Um, and, and the conference I grew up in, the Central Texas Conference, the United Methodist Church, they have this phenomenal, phenomenal summer mission program that I wish every conference in America would like knock on their door and figure out how in the world they pull it off. Because they get like basically all of the Methodist churches in the Central Texas Conference, all of their youth groups, they all team up every summer over two or three thousand students every summer and they'll and they'll go to an area Arkansas Oklahoma South Texas and they'll go and they'll stay in living centers together and you'll get to know other churches and you'll get to know other youth and you work for a week and it's hard laborious work and uh, and that really is where I began to understand who Jesus was you know before I was being taught about Jesus I think I knew things about Jesus but I didn't really know Jesus until I was able to get out there and work and practice being the hands and feet so let's talk about that today. So, Reagan, thank you so much. Bibles are important in church. Um, lesson number one today. So we're going to be reading from the first letter of John. Uh, this comes towards the very end of your Bibles. This is not the Gospel of John, but the first letter of John. Um, traditionally, we say it's the same author. Um, we're going to be looking in the third chapter, beginning in verse 16. This is, a, this is a pastoral letter to a Christian community somewhere around the turn of the century, the first century uh, CE. And so the author says this, John says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for, for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who is the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help. Whew. Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Those are some good words. We're going to work with this this morning. So something that we should know about the community that John is writing to is like I said, this comes around the, the 100th year. Uh, so, you know, Jesus has been gone for about 70-ish years. They're pretty sure he's not coming back tomorrow. And so what happens is they begin to develop the church. The church is really born, and it's more institutionalized, and they're trying to figure out stuff about Jesus. Before, it was just, let's get the message of Jesus out as quickly as, it, as we can. We've got all these different sort of spoken stories of who Jesus is, but no one had really bothered to sit down and write down, here's who Jesus was, here's what we believe about Jesus, like this is what the church officially believes. This all starts to develop around the time when John's letter is being written. That's why in Paul's letters that we read in the Bible, we see him beginning to address 
issues of doctrine because they realize, oh my gosh, even just around the Mediterranean, we Christians, we don't agree about what we believe about things. So let's figure this stuff out. Now, there was this growing teaching that was, that was in the church that was uh, sort of this fringe group that became a, a heresy. I love a good heresy, don't you? Um, and, and it's called Gnosticism. And have you ever known somebody, maybe it's someone in the workplace, or, or maybe you're married to this person, where they just always have to be different? Yeah? Like if everybody says that, you know, remember the, remember the dress that was uh, blue and black? They're like, no, it's white and gold. Right? Remember that? Like they, they always have to say it's the opposite of what everybody else does. They always have to reinterpret. They always have to flip everything on its head. Do you know somebody like this? Yeah? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> So the Gnostics in the early church, they're, they're kind of this way. They, they say, well, what if we just like flipped all the Bible on it said? What if, like in the beginning, the, the snake was actually a good guy? And, and like, what if Jesus isn't everything that these other people are saying? What if Jesus wasn't actually a person? What if he was just a spirit? What if he was just sort of the spiritual feeling? And what if, what if all Christianity is really about is, is enlightenment and knowing, you know, knowing ourselves better, knowing who we are spiritually better, right? And I think, honestly, there's a lot of Gnosticism in the church today where we focus a whole lot on what's up here, and we forget that so much of our faith is born here and born here. Um, so there's this part in, in Gnosticism, it's this, this belief called docetism. We're getting some fun words this morning. Docetism was this belief, I just said a moment ago, that, that Jesus didn't really come down in the body, that he came down simply in spirit. That, that Jesus wasn't a physical, tangible human, that the, the human form was kind of an illusion. But all Jesus was was this spiritual being, um, because it would have been beneath God to become fully human. And this is, this is what John is trying to, to, to fight against in this first letter. And you can hear it in, in how he describes the way faith should be lived. Because he's going to say, no, Jesus absolutely came down in the flesh. Jesus absolutely came down in a body. It's important that we believe in a Christ with a body and with a life and with hands and with feet. And so what do we do when we have faith in this person? We said we know love by this, that he laid his life down for us. Not that he pretended to, but he laid his life, his physical life, down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word and speech. See, a spirit can give you word and speech, but in truth and action. We need to have some, some weight to our faith. There needs to be something tangible to our faith. So this, this concept of docetism and, and, and Gnosticism, all this, this was struck down as heresy in the Council of Nicaea around 325. It took him 200 years to figure this out. Can you believe that? 200 years. Nowadays, we're figuring out little bitty stuff. Can you imagine that today the church had to argue over, like, who's Jesus? That's a big question. It only took them 200 years, though. They got it sorted out. The first thing I want us to think about this morning, when it says we ought to lay down our lives for one another, the same body that Jesus was born with, that he was willing to lay down, this, this human, this tangible, this real life, we ought to lay it down for one another. The, the centering question I want us to ask this morning is, does our faith have flesh? This is why I think service is important. Does our faith have flesh? Is our faith something that is simply spiritual? Is this something that we just like to think about? We like to pray about? Or are we willing to do something about it? Are we willing to sacrifice something tangible and real for it? Are we willing to lay our lives down? John is not saying this in sort of the figure of speech of like, would you lay down? No, he's saying, are you willing to die for your faith? 
That's a big question, John. That's a question I wrestle with all the time. You know, I think about Christians who are persecuted around the world. I wonder if that was a world that I lived in, where my faith actually could cost me something real and not just a tithe, not just a Sunday morning. But if my faith really could cost me something real, would I still have it? Does my faith have flesh? What John is going to argue strongly, fervently, unrelentingly is, is this incarnational faith. When we use the word incarnation, I know we got people in the room that maybe this is your first Sunday in church. We got teenagers in the room. If you're like me, I was a teenager and the church would use big, I'm like, why don't y'all just tell me what that means? Why do y'all got to use fancy? The church loves fancy language, right? Incarnational church simply means, or incarnational faith and incarnational Jesus, that simply means something that has been made real, that has been brought into the flesh, John is going to say we need to have an incarnational faith. We need a Jesus who is real, a Jesus who has flesh, a Jesus that we can touch and we can see and we can hug and we can embrace, who's not this sort of ghosty illusion but is somebody real that we can cling to, literally. We need an incarnational Jesus and we need an incarnational faith. And I think incarnational faith, a faith that is real, a faith that we can touch, a faith that has meaning is important because sometimes being present in spirit just isn't enough. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where somebody being present with you in spirit just wasn't enough? If you had Christmas morning and your whole family said, well, we'll be with you in spirit. You wake up, you go downstairs, and nobody's there. Is that enough? Or I can't help but think of yesterday at, at, at the celebration of life service for Didi's mom. I wonder if we'd all say, hey, Didi, we'll be there in spirit. We love you. We'll be there in spirit. And she walks into an empty chapel. Would that have been enough? Incarnational faith, having a faith that has flesh, having a Christ who has flesh, having something real, something tangible, someone you can embrace is important because sometimes being present in spirit just isn't enough. Amen? Are there times in your life where you needed Someone incarnationally, you needed someone, something, some flesh, some real tangible life to hold and to cling to. Does our flesh, or does our faith have flesh? In verse 18, he says, little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. I mean, we got a lot of words in speech these days. I'm in the business of it. I got a lot of colleagues who, who were really good at words and speech. You know, in our denomination, we can be good at words and speech. In the Methodist Church, we love nothing more than a resolution at our annual conference. Let's write a resolution. That'll fix it. Words and speech. And sometimes words and speech are important. They can inspire. They can provide leadership. They can provide vision. But at the end of the day, words and speech don't really do a lot in and of themselves. Sometimes we need truth and action. You know, whenever we have a tragedy, it's very common human nature for us to hop on social media or even to say amongst our friends, you know, we need to give our thoughts and prayers to those. And that's important. I, I don't want to demean or put down thoughts and prayers and words and speech. Those things are important. But I love this quote from Pope Francis now, it's kind of funny because today is, is like the, this week has been the, you know, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right, which for church history nerds, that's when the Protestant church started, when, when we broke away from the Catholic church. Well, today I'm going to lift up the Pope, so, you know, a peace offering, if you will, 500 years later. I love this quote from the Pope. He says, you pray for the hungry, 
and then you feed them. That's how prayer works. (laughs) You pray for the hungry, and then you feed them. That's how prayer works. How many of us are so guilty about praying for the hungry and then saying, I can't wait to see who feeds them? Or praying for the homeless and saying, I can't wait to see who houses them. Or praying for DACA recipients and saying, I can't wait to see who protects them. Or praying for tragedy victims and saying, I can't wait to see who helps them. Or praying for Puerto Rico and saying, I can't wait to see who helps rebuild them. You pray for the hungry and then you feed them. That is how prayer works. Pope Francis is a visionary leader because I believe he's calling Christians around the world, and I'll put myself in that category. He's a phenomenal Christian leader because I think he makes faith fleshy. He does. He makes faith fleshy. He takes this thing that is so, you know, ambiguous and and ethereal, and he makes it real and tangible, and he washes people's feet, and he hugs people you're not supposed to hug, and he gets his robes dirty, and he wears simple robes, and he doesn't care for the pomp and the circumstance. He wants to make faith fleshy again, and I think that resonates with not just Catholics, but Methodists and Baptists and non-denoms and Pentecostals and whatever. I think that resonates with people because we're tired of a faith that only talks, We're tired of a faith that only talks. I asked this past week on social media, who do you consider to be a servant leader in your life? Man, I loved those responses. That was awesome. I saw people bragging on on their fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, and I saw people bragging on some people in our church, and that was awesome. I think that Pope Francis is an epitome of a servant leader. I mean, he's the Pope. (laughs) He's the Pope, right? And the Pope's like, I mean, it's the Pope. Like, it's it's the Pope. And he washes people's feet. He's the, like, the Pope is a big deal, Methodist. Like, it's a big deal. I know some pastors in the Methodist church. They're not the Pope, but they sure act like it. (laughs) They'd like to think they are. They're not washing feet. They're not getting out like he is. I think the Pope is a servant leader because he doesn't think that faith is strictly a spiritual or headspace thing. He realizes people need to see humble service as a part of the Christian faith. I mean, that if there's one thing you distill Jesus down into, I mean, is it not humility? Is it not sacrifice? Is it not a willingness to get dirty and torn up and beaten and bruised for the sake of your faith? I think he gets that. I need to get that better in my own life. So let's talk about us. We've talked about the Pope. Let's talk about us. Let's talk about the difference. There's a difference, I think, in our faith, in our service, our 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 understanding of service, and this is the shift I want us to talk about making this week, between doing service and being a servant. How many of us in the room have ever done an act of service in your life? I mean, everybody can raise your hand. It really, I mean, everybody. I assume. If you haven't, please talk to me. Let's, talk. Let's get you on a volunteer team. I mean, doing service is, is pretty easy. Because when you do service, here, here's what's fun is that, is that, first of all, you're in control. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You get to maintain control, so you check your calendar. Okay, when do you need me? Let me see. Okay. Oh, I've got coffee that morning. Can't do it. Sorry. Okay, when's the next time that the hungry need food? Let me know, please. Um, I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm saying this for myself, too. I mean, this is, not, this is not like a me wagging your finger. This is Scott like, oh, wait, when's that that you need me for? And I'm checking. I'm going, wait a second. What am I doing? Doing service is easy because we get to maintain control and we get to fit the service into our life. We get to fit the need into our busy schedule. If it doesn't fit our schedule, then the need doesn't really exist, right? Because, well, someone else will take care of it when the reality is maybe that's not true. 
doing service is easy because um, when we go and do it, there's usually a celebration aspect of that too, right? You get a pat on the back. Maybe you get a cool trendy t-shirt. You can, I like I volunteered. Look at that. You know? um, when I was a teenager, I'll be honest, when I went on those mission trips, I really enjoyed the feeling of, of when the homeowner would say, wow, thank you so much for what you did. You know, first few years, like that's, that's what I lived for. I loved that look of gratification on their face. Being a servant, though, being a servant is something different entirely because it stops being this thing that you sort of like step into and do from time to time. Well, I guess I'll, I'll do that. Maybe I'll do that. I don't have time for that. I'll do this if I got a thank you card for what I did last year, but if I didn't, then I'm done, you know. Um, <laughs> you think I'm joking. Um, being a servant means that you wake up in your morning and just like last week or two weeks ago, we talked about how our money is not ours, that, that our lives are not to own. You wake up in the morning and you realize that your life is not your own. And one of your chief responsibilities when you walk this world is, like the letter to John's church says, is to see a world in need, brothers and sisters. I love that he says a brother or sister in need. If you were driving down the highway and you saw your brother asking for change, would you keep going? If your sister walked into the church and said, I have fallen some hard times, I need some help, would we redirect them to an outside ministry? If my brother came up to me and said, this is what I'm walking through right now, is there anyone I can talk to? Would I say, well, let me check my calendar, bro. He's in the back, he's in the tech booth. Jake, I would always make time for you. I would always make time for you. Brothers and sisters, I love that he puts it in that frame because when we begin to view our lives as servants, when we begin to see the people around us in need as brothers and sisters, the choice becomes very easy. How quickly do you clear your calendar for your family? How quickly do you say yes to the people that you love the most? When we adopt an attitude of being a servant, not just doing service, but being servants and looking in the world for brothers and sisters in need, it changes everything because then we begin to live into this service mindset in everyday monotonous ways, little ways that will never get celebrated, that will never make the news, that we will never promote from here up on stage. I will never know about them. People in the crowd will never know about them. And it's the thing, those are the things that will change the world. Those are the things that will change the world because when all of us view our lives as lives of service and we begin to do the little things daily, day in and day out, that is how communities change. That is how cities change. That is how worlds change. There's two things that I, this week as I was preparing this message that happened in the life of our church that I want to lift up this morning. Because I, I love when he says, God, if this isn't convicting, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? How does God's love abide in anyone who sees a need and refuses to help? I love that he puts so few limitations on that. How can God's love abide in you if you see a need and you refuse to help? Well, there's two things that happened this past week in the life of our church where there was a need, and I saw our church respond in a powerful way, and it was inspiring to me. And so rather than me talking and teaching you, I'm going to let you teach yourselves for a second. First off, we got an email about a week ago from a couple in our church. They attend the crosswalk service 
that follows this one. Um, Two women who've been together in a relationship for uh, over a year now, who love each other deeply, and one of them was just diagnosed with stage three cancer. And they'd been planning to get married, but they were putting it off for a while. They were going to let, you know, they were taking their time. And um, something about a stage three diagnosis changes things, doesn't it? So they reached out to us and they said, we know that we can't have the wedding in the church uh, because we understand the rules in the Methodist church, but, but what about the house at the corner of your property? And, um, and so uh, we had to respond to them, and, 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 and um, our senior pastor, Stan Copeland, if you don't know him, if nothing else, he has the heart of a pastor, uh, and I've, I've been able to see it sitting at his feet for the last seven or eight years now. Um, and so here he has this situation. He goes, okay, I've got these two women. They want to get married. We can't. We've made a covenant as a church um, with the United Methodist Church that we don't do that, but... Um, what do we do? How do we respond to this? And he, so he had to respond pastorally, I'm, I'm sorry, but we can't have um, your wedding in the house. It's still part of our property, um, and, and I hope you can understand that. But he said, I want to do something. I want to see if one of the families who lives around the church would be willing to open up their home to you for your wedding. And so Stan emailed about eight or ten families that live right around this church. He said, hey, by, by, by chance, it's this Sunday. You know, it's short. I mean, they're, they're wanting to get this done because she's going to be in five years of aggressive chemo and radiation treatment for her cancer. He said, would any of you be willing to open up your home? Guess how many of them said no? All eight of them said, yeah, we'll do it. One of them said, you know, we've got an event that's sort of that night, but we'll make it work. We'll make it work. See, the calendar flew out the window because there's a brother or sister in need. All eight of them said, yeah, we'll make it work. So this son, after church today, there's going to be a wedding over at a member's house. they got a friend officiating. It's going to be by the book because this is a church that's agreed to keep the covenant um, while our denomination is figuring things out. But I want to tell you, and I don't, really don't care what your opinion is on the, on the larger issue. I want to tell you the way this church responded to two sisters in need who want to express love for one another, who are going to say and mean in sickness and in health this afternoon. The way that our church responded to that impressed me immensely. And I hope it impressed you. And I hope you find that inspiring. Now, we also had something happen last week uh, that Thrive is more intimately aware of. Um, Sweet Ryan. Um, If you were streaming online, you had quite the experience, as I've spoken to a few of you. Um, So if you're not aware, uh, towards the end of what I would say was a very fine sermon, um, (laughs) sermon on prayer, actually, uh, and the importance of prayer. Um, Out of the corner of my eye, uh, I see Ryan. Ryan, give a little wave. Ryan's our camera operator over there on the side. I see see Cameron, or (laughs) Cameron, Ryan just uh, collapse in a heap, and uh, immediately I stop being a presenter and I start being a human being and I jump off the stage and so there's a crash and his sweet mother screams and then it cuts to black on the, str- on the stream. So our streamers are like, what is happening? <laughs> so that's what we call a learning experience for young preachers about what we do in those situations. But um, I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know if it was the stage that had fell, but it turns out it was Ryan that had fallen. Ryan's on the floor with a chair now. Yay. He's learned the valuable lesson about locking your knees and eating a healthy breakfast before you come up and work at the church. Um, so Ryan had fainted, and, uh, and then what happened next is crazy. 
Within, I want to say, about five seconds, and I'm going to screw some of this up, so forgive me in advance if you were one of these people and I don't mention you, but we had, uh, to my knowledge, a, cardi- uh, a pediatric cardiologist and two ER nurses, amongst other medically trained professionals, at his side. Um, so I, I, I joked that if he had fainted in a hospital, he would have gotten worse care. Um, <laughs> So we're, you know, of course, our pastoral staff is standing over there, and we're trying to see what's going on. And and I see Steve Anglin wrap his arm around Wendy and his, Ryan's mom and, and and lead her away because he wanted to be compassionate and make sure that she, you know, she could be comforted and and not have to see what whatever was happening. And and I see the people sitting in this in this area. They're they're very kindly sort of scooting over, moving over. I mean, everyone's looking. And then out of the corner of my eye. I see Ryan Walton King, one of our members who's been coming here for years. He's standing at the front in front of the altar with his hand raised, praying for Ryan by name. And I'm like, I should be doing that. (laughs) That's probably what one of us should be doing. I mean, how cool it is that we have a community here that reminds your pastor when it's time to be pastoral, right? Um, God, that's this image I will never forget. So we're up here praying and and, he, and here's, the, here's the fun part is that, you know, we were going to be finishing up worship. We were supposed to have Commitment Sunday, which joke's on you. It's actually today, if you thought you missed it last week. Um, I told Ryan, you really screwed up Commitment Sunday for me, bud. Um, so we, we ended worship early. We sent everyone out in the hall, and they stayed. People stayed. Like, everybody stayed because they wanted to know what was going on. Wow. Calendar flew out the window, right? Brother or sister was in need. Now, here's the really crazy cool. All of that is amazing. This, the way this community responded in so many different ways. You know, we begin to think sometimes that service is only for certain people. Guess what? When Ryan fell, we had doctors and nurses who knew what they were supposed to be doing. Ryan Walton King knew what he was supposed to be doing. He was praying. Steve Anglin knew what he was supposed to be doing. He was comforting. The whole room knew what we were supposed to be doing. We were staying calm and giving them space and waiting to hear an update. Here, here's the craziest part of the story. There's a young man in our um, uh, preteen ministry named Reese Langdon. And Reese is one of the first kids I met when I came to Lover's Lane. And I learned Reese's name really quick. (laughs) And Reese knows that. When you're a teacher and you learn the name really quick, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Reese, undoubtedly the most excited kid every single Sunday morning. This kid loved church growing up so much he couldn't even contain it, you know. And Reese always had a story, always had a story to share. Um, So Reese is in the sixth grade now. This church has raised him. This church has formed him in his faith. And I want to give you an image of what that faith looks like for Reese. So Reese was volunteering with our first graders last Sunday during Sunday school hour, during the hour that Thrive is happening. And, of course, they had no idea what was going on. They were all the way across campus. No one had, you know, no one had informed them. No, we were still figuring it out here. That he, he hears an ambulance siren approaching the church. And Reese Langdon, sixth grader, stops the teachers, stops the students, stops the whole room, and says, we ought to pray. We ought to pray for that ambulance, whoever they're going to help. And Reese Langdon led that room of first graders and their leaders and a prayer for the EMTs, for whoever they were here to help, for that God would be with them, that God would comfort them, that God would work through the medical professionals. And then they closed their prayer and they continued with their mourning. Guys, I, I learned Reese's name really quick, but after last week, I'll never forget Reese Langdon's name. 
Because that is a young man who was formed in the faith and his faith has flesh. And in the moment, he didn't care about what we were learning about in the moment. He saw a teaching opportunity and he saw a moment of faith when an ambulance was coming out of the church for someone he didn't even know. And he said, let's pray about this. And he taught those first graders something that they will never forget. So Ryan's, after we're done filling out the incident report, those are always fun. Ryan's upstairs with his mom, and, and they make their way down to the car. And, you know, Ryan's shaking up, and, and, and so we were all tearing up. I mean, all of us were just a mess. You know, it's a good thing I didn't wear my mascara that day. And um, Ryan goes and sits down in the car with his mom, and, you know, he's, he's, he's still tearing up. And, and she said, baby, you know, what, what's, um, what's making you cry the most right now? Just, you know, let me in a little bit. And he said, I just cannot believe how much everyone was there to take care of me. I cannot believe how much this church rallied around to take care of me. It's just overwhelming. Now, Ryan was in my kids' ministry. He heard me lead a lot of Sunday school lessons. He's in our youth ministry. He listens to a lot of sermons there. He films me, so he's got to listen to my dumb voice talk every single week. There's a lot of sermons. He'll probably hear thousands of sermons in his life. He'll go to hundreds of Bible studies. And I don't know that any of those will leave an impression on his faith like what this church did last week. Y'all put faith or flesh on his faith last week. And you put flesh on my faith as well. This church was incarnational last week. There's something special about what's happening in this room. There's something special about this community. And it was on display last week in the midst of a, of a scary moment that turned out to be actually an an incredible thing for all of us. So um, I want to thank you as your pastor for the way that every single person responded. And you may have thought you did nothing, but you did do something. Everybody did something last week. The reality is that, that there are times in our lives when we see a need in a brother or sister, and we have to become the hands and feet of Christ. When we become the hands and feet of Christ, it makes an impact, it makes an impression. It's made an impression on Ryan, it's made an impression on Reese, it's made an impression on me. I hope it's made an impression on you. This morning, Stan chose to close his sermon with a poem that I'm totally going to steal, because it's a good one. And Stan steals content from me from time to time, but Stan would never, ever allow me to say that, would you, Stan? No, no, no. It's a poem by Teresa of Avila. She says this, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks, compassion on in this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Let us pray. Holy God, we come to you this morning in a spirit of worship, in a spirit of prayer, and in a spirit of action and truth. We are thankful for the words of your Apostle John. 
He could remind us that faith is about more than simply thinking or even feeling about God, but about living and doing for God. Not when it fits our schedules, not when we can make time for it, but whenever we see a brother or sister in need. God, this week as we go about our lives, allow us to adopt a position of servanthood. Allow us to walk through our mornings and our middays and our evenings with the posture of a servant, looking and listening for the cries of need from our brothers and sisters in this world. Help us to adopt a spirit of humility that says we are always one or two or three steps away from being that brother or sister in need. Allow us to love your children the way that you love us, unconditionally, completely, unrelentingly. God, we give you thanks for a community of faith that has flesh. A community of faith who responds in times of need. A community of faith that we can trust in to be there for us when it is our lives and our bodies on the line. We find comfort in the brothers and sisters that we know here. God, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for enlivening your word for us this morning. All this we pray in the name of your Son, who came in the flesh to live and to love and to die and to rise again amongst us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.